you. I would now like to turn the conference over to Mr. Mike Henke, Head of Investor Relations. Mr. Henke, you may begin your conference. Good morning, and welcome to Biogen's third quarter 2022 earnings call. Before we begin, I encourage everyone to go to the Investors section of Biogen.com to find the earnings release and related financial tables, including our GAAP financial measures and the reconciliation of the GAAP to non-GAAP financial measures that we will discuss today. Our GAAP financials are provided in Tables 1 and 2, and Table 4 includes a reconciliation of our GAAP to non-GAAP financial results. We believe non-GAAP financial results better represent the ongoing economics of our business and reflect how we manage the business internally. We have also posted slides on our website that follow the discussions related to this call. I would like to point out that we will be making forward-looking statements, which are based on our current expectations and beliefs. These statements are subject to certain risks and uncertainties, and our actual results may differ materially. I encourage you to consult the risk factors discussed in our SEC filings for additional detail. On today's call, I am joined by our Chief Executive Officer, Michelle Vunatsos, Dr. Priya Singhal, Interim Head of Research and Development, and our CFO, Mike McDonald. As a reminder, during the Q&A portion of the call, we kindly ask that you limit yourself to one question. I will now turn the call over to Michelle. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. This is an exciting time for Biogen. In addition to key developments across our pipeline, which includes 12 programs in phase three or filed, we continue to execute and we are pleased to be raising our full year financial guidance. I would like to begin by reviewing the important advances we made this quarter and what we believe they mean for Biogen. Priya will then review our recent progress in R&D and Mike will discuss our third quarter performance. First, together with SI, we were excited to announce the positive results from Clarity AD, the phase three study of lecanemab in early Alzheimer's disease. For over 15 years, Biogen has been working relentlessly to bring forward new therapeutics in Alzheimer's disease, incorporating both new insights in disease biology and clinical trial design. And today, we celebrate the positive Clarity AD readout as a significant achievement in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. The results from Clarity AD illustrated several key aspects of Lecanemab's clinical profile, which we believe could provide a meaningful benefit for patients. First, Lecanemab administration showed a highly statistically significant reduction in clinical decline as early as six months, which expanded over the 18 months study period on an absolute basis, consistent with a disease-modifying effect. <coughs> Sorry. Second, the study was positive on all key secondary endpoints. This includes measure of cognition, as well as activities of daily living, such as conducting personal finances, performing household tasks, and independently traveling out of home. Third, the rate of ARIA in Clarity AD was within expectations. With an FDA decision on accelerated approval expected by January 6th of next year, and ASI's plan to file for traditional approval in the US, EU, and Japan by the end of Q1 2023, Lecanemab has the potential to be the first globally approved treatment to slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease. We look forward 
to working with SI as they continue to engage both regulators and CMS with the goal of ensuring that people with Alzheimer's disease have access to important new treatments. We believe the Clarity AD results underscore the progress we are making in the fight against Alzheimer's, but Biogen will not stop here. We plan to build upon our current learnings as we continue to advance a diversified pipeline of potential Alzheimer's treatments. This includes two clinical stage assets targeting tau pathology, BIB-80, our phase two ready antisense oligonucleotide, and BIB-113, a phase one small molecule. Beyond Alzheimer's, Biogen has important new opportunities in other therapeutic areas where the unmet medical need remains significant. This includes depression, where together with SAGE, we are continuing to advance the regulatory filing for Zuranolone in both major depressive disorders and postpartum depression. With a novel mechanism of action, efficacy observed as early as three days, and a consistent safety and tolerability profile across eight clinical studies, we believe that Zuranolone, if approved, could be a meaningful new therapy for depression. Second, the FDA has accepted our filing for Tofersen in SOD1 ALS under the accelerated approval pathway and granted priority review. While the study did not meet the primary endpoint at six months, longer follow-up <clears throat> has shown that patients who remain on Tofersen experience a slow rate of decline in key clinical measures, including lung functions, muscle strength, and quality of life. We are truly encouraged by these results in such a debilitating and fatal disease and look forward to an FDA decision expected by April of next year. <clears throat> we believe these near-term opportunities, along with new launches of biosimilars, have the potential to drive renewed growth and position us to have five key franchises by 2025. Furthermore, we see the potential for additional growth drivers in the mid to late 2020s in areas such as Parkinson's disease, lupus, and stroke, all with programs currently in phase three. Overall, we believe that we are at an inflection point in CNS drug discovery and development. And these recent developments embody key advancements that are being made in neuroscience. For years, Biogen has been expanding our expertise and capabilities in this area, and we believe that we are well positioned to remain a leader in neuroscience as we work to usher in the new next wave of CNS therapeutics, while also advancing our portfolio in specialized immunology, where we have four late-stage studies in lupus. I will now turn the call over to Priya for a more detailed update on our recent progress in R&D. Thank you, Michelle, and good morning, everyone. As Michelle mentioned, we had several exciting R&D achievements this past quarter that meaningfully advanced the potential of our pipeline which includes 30 programs, 12 of which are in phase three or filed in order to deliver new impactful therapies for patients and drive renewed growth for the company. Starting with Alzheimer's disease, together with ESI, we were very excited 
to announce the positive results of the Clarity AD study evaluating lecanemab in early Alzheimer's disease. The primary endpoint of the study was the change from baseline on CDR sum of boxes, a well-established measure of cognition and function in Alzheimer's disease. The study met the primary endpoint and lecanemab reduced clinical decline on the CDR sum of boxes compared with placebo at 18 months by 0.45, representing a treatment difference of 27%. We also observed a highly statistically significant reduction in CDR summer boxes versus placebo as early as six months. We believe this demonstrates a rapid onset of efficacy and a significant change in CDR summer boxes versus placebo. Furthermore, the effect on CDR summer boxes expanded over the 18-month study period on an absolute basis, suggesting that lecanemab was exerting a disease-modifying effect. The study also met all key secondary endpoints, reinforcing lecanemab's impact on cognition and function. This includes a statistically significant reduction in amyloid plaques in the brain, as well as additional clinical assessments such as the ADCS-MCI-ADL, a caregiver-rated assessment of activities of daily living relative to placebo. We believe that these efficacy results, when combined with an observed overall incidence of ARIA of approximately 21%, highlight the potential for lecanemab to be a leading disease-modifying treatment for Alzheimer's disease. ESI will present the Clarity AD study results at CTAD in November and intends to publish the findings in a peer-reviewed medical journal. The lecanemab filing under the accelerated approval pathway is currently under review with a PDUFA date of January 6, 2023. The FDA has also agreed that the Clarity AD could serve as a confirmatory study to verify the clinical benefit of lecanemab. Accordingly, we expect ESI will file for traditional approval of lecanemab in the U.S. as soon as possible following a positive FDA decision on accelerated approval. This filing is expected by the end of Q1 2023, along with marketing authorization applications in the EU and Japan expected by the end of Q1 2023 as well. ESI has also been engaging with the centers of Medicare and Medicaid services as they work to maximize access for patients. Beyond these regulatory and access engagements, together with ESI, we are also advancing a comprehensive development program for the CANAMAB, which includes, first, the ongoing AHEAD 345 preclinical study to evaluate lecanemab when administered earlier in disease, when amyloid pathology is present, but before the onset of cognitive impairment. Second, investigating a potential maintenance dosing regimen with the goal of reducing the lecanemab dosing frequency over time. And the development of a subcutaneous formulation of lecanemab at AAIC earlier this year, ESI presented bioavailability data from a phase one study comparing IV versus subcutaneous dosing 
as well as modeling and simulation data illustrating that a fixed subcutaneous dose of 720 milligrams administered weekly may potentially result in comparable exposure and efficacy to the current IV formulation while potentially, potentially lowering the incidence of aria. With these results in hand, we are focused now on maintaining our leadership position in Alzheimer's disease over the long term. We have an industry-leading portfolio addressing both amyloid and tau pathologies, as well as a multi-target, multi-modality, preclinical portfolio targeting a broad range of Alzheimer's disease biology. Now, I will turn to neuropsychiatry, where this quarter, Biogen and SAGE presented new data that supports Zoranolone's potential, if approved, as a novel treatment for both major depressive disorder and postpartum depression. This includes an updated analysis of the open-label ongoing longitudinal shoreline study in MDD, which showed that the medium time to onset first I'm sorry, the median time to first repeat treatment for patients who responded to the original 14-day treatment was 135 days for the 30 milligram cohort and 249 days for the 50 milligram cohort. We believe these data further support Duranolone as a potential meaningful new treatment for people suffering from depression. And we are continuing to work with SAGE to advance a single U.S. regulatory filing for Zoranolone in MDD and PPD expected to be completed by the end of this year. Moving on to our neuromuscular portfolio, the New England Journal of Medicine recently published 12-month data from the Phase 3 Valor study and its open-label extension evaluating tofersen in SOD1 ALS a progressive and rare genetic form of ALS, which currently has no targeted therapy. The published data showed that patients who initiated to person in Valor experienced slower rates of decline across critical measures of function, muscle strength, and quality of life versus those who transitioned from placebo to to person at the start of the open label extension six months later. Furthermore, tofersen led to a robust and sustained reduction in neurofilament, a marker of neuronal injury and neurodegeneration. In July, the tofersen filing was accepted by the FDA under the accelerated approval pathway with priority review. Subsequently, we submitted responses to information requests by the FDA which the FDA considered a major amendment to the application that will require additional time for review. As a result, the review period has been extended by three months with an FDA decision now expected by April 25, 2023. In movement disorders, together with Denali, we initiated our second late-stage clinical trial for BIB-122, a small molecule LARC-2 inhibitor. The Phase 3 Lighthouse study will evaluate BIB-122 in individuals with a confirmed pathogenic LARC2 mutation. Given that LARC2 activity is believed to regulate lysosomal function, an underlying biological pathway implicated in Parkinson's disease, we are also advancing 
the phase 2b luma study in idiopathic parkinson's disease which we initiated earlier this year moving on to specialized immunology we were excited to announce the initiation of the phase 2-3 study of lituvimab or bit 59 in cutaneous lupus erythematosus or cle the prior phase 2 lilac study of lituvimab met the primary endpoints in both parts of the study evaluating safety and efficacy in individuals with cle and systemic lupus erythematosus or sle the detailed phase 2 results were recently published as two separate manuscripts in the new england journal of medicine the phase 2 3 study in cle builds upon our mid to late stage pipeline in specialized immunology which also includes three phase 3 studies in sle two for lituvimab and one for daparolizumab pegol which we are developing in collaboration with ucb looking ahead we also have a number of exciting opportunities on the horizon this includes the potential to deliver new therapies in alzheimers depression and sod1 als initiation of mid to late stage programs in alzheimers disease and stroke and a proof of concept study readout in broad als in conclusion we believe that our recent progress exemplifies important elements of our broader approach to r&d at biogen this includes a focus on genetically validated targets and biology the use of novel biomarkers to better characterize disease biology and target engagement as well as our ability to employ the right therapeutic modality for the specific disease area or target together we believe these principles combined with our ongoing prioritization effort have the potential to increase the probability of success in disease areas with significant unmet need i will now pass the call over to mike thank you priya and good morning everyone i will provide some highlights of our financial performance for the third quarter and an update to our full year 2022 guidance please note that all financial comparisons are versus the third quarter of 2021 Total revenue for the third quarter was 2.5 billion dollars, a decrease of 10% at actual currency and 8% at constant currency. Non-GAAP diluted EPS in the third quarter was $4.77, which was flat versus the third quarter of 2021. Total MS revenue inclusive of Ocrevus royalties was $1.6 billion, which was a decrease of 11% at actual currency and 9% at constant currency. Global Tecfidera revenue of $339 million decreased 32% at actual currency and 30% at constant currency. We saw continued erosion of Tecfidera in the US due to generics and an impact from generics outside of the US, primarily in Germany. We continue to see new generic launches in the EU. Earlier this month, the Advocate General of the European Court of Justice issued a non-binding advisory opinion. We would expect Tecfidera to have statutory market protection until at least February of 2024 if the court adopts the advisory opinion. There is no deadline for the court to issue its final decision, but we understand that approximately 3 to 5 months after issuance of the advocate general's opinion is typical. Separately, we are filing actions to enforce our recently granted European Tecfidera dosing patent which expires in 2028. 
We have been successful in obtaining preliminary injunctions in some countries and unsuccessful in others, including Germany and France. Until we either affirm Tecfidera's entitlement to statutory market protection in the EU or successfully assert our patent, generics can continue to sell in the countries where we do not have preliminary injunctions in place. Global Vimerity revenue of $138 million increased 14% at actual currency and 15% at constant currency. U.S. Vimerity revenue increased 6% with higher volumes partially offset by increased discounts and allowances. Vimerity is being impacted by both payer pressure and a contraction of the oral segment of the market in the United States. We continue to work with our contract manufacturing supplier to address potential supply constraints for Vimerity. We have identified the root cause, implemented manufacturing changes required to resolve the issue, and are now working to secure necessary related regulatory approvals. We do not anticipate a supply shortage in 2022 and are currently focused on rebuilding adequate inventory with the goal of assuring supply and reinitiating new country launches in 2023. Global TISABRI revenue of $505 million decreased 3% at actual currency and 1% at constant currency. U.S. TISABRI revenue was negatively impacted by higher discounts and allowances and lower volume. Outside the U.S., we were pleased to see continued patient growth as well as good uptake of the subcutaneous formulation in the EU, which has now been launched in over 25 markets with an average conversion rate of approximately 40%. Although the composition of matter patents for TISABRI have expired, we have other patents related to the making and using of TISABRI, including those listed in our 10K. We continue to enforce this IP, including filing suit against Sandoz in the United States. Global interferon revenue of $336 million decreased 13% at actual currency and 12% at constant currency and was impacted by the continued shift from the injectable platforms to oral or high-efficacy therapies. Moving to SMA, Global Spinraza revenue of $431 million declined 3% at actual currency and increased 2% at constant currency. In the United States, Spinraza revenue was flat versus the prior year, and we believe we may be seeing signs of stabilization in the U.S. Outside the U.S., excluding negative currency impacts, revenue increased due to volume growth in certain Asian markets as well as some positive pricing dynamics partially offset by competition and the timing of shipments. Overall, we continue to believe that Spinraza has the potential to grow over time. Moving to our biosimilars business, revenue of $188 million declined 7% at actual currency and 4% at constant currency. We saw an increase in sales volumes, which was offset by unfavorable pricing, as well as negative currency impacts. We continue to expect a gradual launch of BioViz, with more meaningful revenue contribution expected to begin in 2023. Total anti-CD20 revenue of $417 million was flat versus the prior year. Revenue from Ocrevus royalties increased 6%, which was offset by continued rituxan declines due to biosimilar competition. Now moving on to expenses in the balance sheet. Third quarter non-GAAP cost of sales was $470 million, which includes $12 million of idle capacity charges. Going forward, we expect further pressure on gross margins due to shifts in product mix and potential idle capacity charges, largely resulting from the suspension of drug product manufacturing for Agihelm. Third quarter, non-GAAP R&D expense was $549 million. 
This is compared to $702 million in the third quarter of 2021, which included approximately $165 million in upfront payments related to business development transactions, as well as clinical trial closeout costs. Non-GAAP SG&A was $562 million. This is compared to $651 million in the third quarter of 2021. The decrease in SG&A expense was driven primarily by cost savings initiatives. Third quarter collaboration profit sharing was a net expense of $45 million, primarily driven by our collaboration with Samsung BioEpis. Non-GAAP other expense was $55 million, primarily driven by interest expense. In the third quarter, we generated $661 million in cash flow from operations. Capital expenditures were $59 million, and free cash flow was $602 million. We repurchased 1.2 million shares of the company's common stock during the quarter for $250 million at an average price of $214 per share. We ended the quarter with $5.8 billion in cash and marketable securities, $6.3 billion in debt, and approximately $500 million in net debt. Of note, in the third quarter, we received net proceeds of $583 million from the sale of one of our buildings in Cambridge as part of our office footprint optimization initiative. Additionally, in October, we paid $900 million plus fees and expenses to resolve the previously disclosed KETAM litigation. As a reminder, we expect to receive an additional $1.25 billion over the next year and a half from the sale of our equity stake in Samsung BioEpis, including approximately $813 million due in April of next year. Overall, we remain in a very strong financial position with significant cash and financial capacity, including a $1 billion undrawn revolving credit facility to invest in growing the business over the long term. Before I turn to our updated guidance, let me say a few words about Lacanamab. We are excited to be collaborating with ASI on this important opportunity under a global 50-50 profit-sharing agreement. As a reminder, Biogen has the right to co-commercialize and co-promote Lacanamab with ASI, who has final decision-making authority. After approval, our share of profits or losses will be booked as a component of other revenue. The Lacanamab component of other revenue may be negative in the initial quarters of the launch. Please see slide 26 in our earnings presentation for other accounting considerations. Let me now discuss our updated full-year 2022 guidance. We are increasing our full-year revenue guidance from our previous range of $9,900,000,000 to $10,100,000,000 to a new range of $10,000,000 to $10,150,000,000 and increasing our full-year non-GAAP diluted EPS guidance from our previous range of $15.25 to $16.75 to a new range of $16.50 to $17.15. This guidance increase is primarily a result of better-than-expected top-line performance and continued cost management. Our guidance ranges for non-GAAP R&D expense, non-GAAP SG&A expense, and our non-GAAP tax rate are all unchanged from prior guidance. As a reminder, we typically see a seasonally higher SG&A spend in the fourth quarter. This guidance assumes that foreign exchange rates as of September 30th will remain in effect for the remainder of the year net of hedging activities. This financial guidance also assumes continued declines in rituxan revenue due to biosimilar competition 
as well as continued erosion of Tecfidera revenue due to generic entry. Please see our press release for other important guidance assumptions. In summary, we continue to execute well across our core business and are pleased to be raising our financial guidance for the year. We are excited about the recent Lacatamab readout and believe our diversified pipeline across neuroscience, specialized immunology, and biosimilars has the potential to return Biogen to growth over time as we continue to build a multi-franchise portfolio. As always, we remain focused on creating long-term value for our shareholders. And with that, we will now open the call for questions. If you'd like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. As a reminder, please limit yourself to one question. If you require any further follow-up, you may press star 1 again to rejoin the queue. Your first question com comes from the line of Umar Rafat with Evercore. Morning, guys. Um, I had a question on the status of your relationship with Eside. There's been a lot of investor questions on it, and I, I was just really curious if you could speak to sort of the status of the relationship. Um, if you expect Eside to allow you to co-commercialize, um, and that there's not been any sort of contractual disputes or anything like that. Thank you very much. Thanks for the question, Umar. Uh, I uh, I can tell you that uh, the relationship is very solid since many years. I have the opportunity uh, to meet and to align with our, my counterpart on a very regular basis, and I will do that once more in the coming days. Um, the team are working together very closely. Uh, the co-commercialization, co-marketing is being discussed while we speak and is not yet determined, and, uh, but overall the relationship is sound and solid. Mike, do you want to add something? No, I think that, that covers it. I would say that, you know, as we work together on the um, commercialization strategy, um, you know, obviously ASI has final decision-making rights, but it is a 50-50 profit share. And, um, you know, together we're excited for the upcoming CTAD presentation where more detailed study results will be shared. We'll go to our next question from Brian Abrahams with RBC Capital Markets. Hey, good morning. Um, thanks for taking my question, and uh, congrats um, on the quarter and on the Lacanumab data. I'm curious how you envision reimbursement access for Lacanumab with an accelerated versus a full approval. Uh, and I guess I'm wondering, based on your and your partner's ongoing CMS discussions, what your latest views are on whether top-line results from Clarity AD would satisfy CMS's high-level evidence requirement to support NCD reconsideration uh, in the case of an accelerated approval? Thanks. Thanks for this important question. I think it all depends to the strengths of the evidence. We are very pleased with the, uh, the top-line top results on the primary and secondaries. We are all looking forward for CITAD and for a coming uh, publication in order to, has, to assess the level of evidence that will be, uh, that will be considered by, by, by CMS and that will imply the path forward. Priya? Thank you, Michelle. That's exactly right. Um, and I'll just add that, uh, you know, there, is a, there are a couple of scenarios that are outlined in the NCD. So for the accelerated approval scenario, uh, it's essentially coverage only in the situation of a randomized controlled trial, which is essentially non-coverage. 
But for traditional approval, there is a range of uh, options, I think, that the NCD indicates, which is that, you know, it could be covered in a CMS-approved prospective comparative study, including registries. The strength and rigor of that kind of study will depend on the strength and rigor of the randomized control trial that affords the final traditional approval. So in that sense, we feel very confident about the strength of evidence. As you know, uh, we met the primary endpoint with a treatment difference of uh, 0.45, which translated to 27% versus placebo with lecanemab. And also all secondary endpoints were met in a highly statistical significant manner. And in addition, I would add that, you know, we had about 25% of an underrepresented population. So we believe that it's uh, very well designed and the results are very encouraging. Uh, the rest will remain to be seen, and ESA is already engaging with CMS to discuss this. You specifically asked about reconsideration, so I'll just add a note there that uh, in the final scenario that NCD, the final NCD did put out, was that, uh, you know, um, CMS would act with urgency and, uh, you know, potentially a reconsideration could be considered. That could take 9 to 12 months from a historic precedent perspective, but I think in this sense they have said that they would act with urgency, and that would be a full coverage without the need for prospective comparative studies. So I think we need to wait for the CTAD data and uh, continue the engagement. Your next question comes from the line of Salvin Richter with Goldman Sachs. Good morning. Thanks for taking my question. Um, on the back of the Lacanamab data, can you just walk us through how you're thinking about business development and portfolio prioritization? I can tell you that uh, we do remain <clears throat> very active on BD, uh, in evaluating BD. Obviously, the, uh, uh, the, the portfolio is, uh, is, is strong, and as we said uh, during the prepared remark, we have 12 phase threes of file products, and we are getting prepared for uh, AD, ALS, uh, MDD, and PPD, so we are all very busy. Nevertheless, BD is on the table because the portfolio can always be improved. Uh, and uh, we, 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 are, we are evaluating every week prospects and we are making progress. We've made more than 30 deals in the past years, uh, but uh, we continue to be very active. Priya and Mike? Thank you. Um, so I think that's a great question. And, you know, uh, just stepping back, uh, as Michelle mentioned during the remarks, we've seen, we see ourselves as leaders in the Alzheimer's space. We believe that we've done a lot of uh, evaluation of the scientific uh, hypotheses, the biology, and we have set up a portfolio to be able to address both what in terms of the biology and also the when. So I think in terms of the biology, you know, we, we've now had success with lecanemab. Uh, previously, we've seen the results also with aducanumab, and that's the A-beta uh, hypothesis. In addition, we had our own study with a monoclonal antibody against tau, which did not work. So we did test our hypothesis with the extracellular tau, and now we are positioned to initiate our phase two with BIB-80, which is an antisense oligonucleotide that will address all post-translational forms of tau. So we believe that this is a very exciting phase to be. We believe we have a leading antisense oligonucleotide. 
Also, we have Bib 113 in phase one, which addresses tau aggregation uh, and addresses an enzymatic inhibition of tau ag aggregation. So we are really trying to tackle this from all the, from the amyloid and the tau pathology basis. Behind that, in the preclinical space, we have also several other biologies that we are looking at very carefully in terms of targets and also modalities. So I think we have a very comprehensive approach. And with regards to when, I'm very pleased that we uh, have lecanemab already being tested in preclinical uh, Alzheimer's disease. So that's a study that's uh, already ongoing which will address what happens when you intervene with an anti-amyloid uh, therapy you know, prior when you do have the amyloid aggregation, but you don't have symptoms. So I think it's a very comprehensive approach. We are not going to stop here. We continue to look at very attractive targets. And I think BD and internal development will continue to be important. And finally, you know, with lecanemab, we are testing two very important aspects in our development plan. Uh, ESA is obviously the lead on this. In the phase two open label extension, we're looking at maintenance dosing. So what's the right frequency, uh, you know, to con continue to preserve uh, you know, the, the clinical decline uh, progression uh, stop. And we are looking at subcutaneous development in the phase three open label extension. So I think overall it's very, very comprehensive. And I think this will be a space that we will continue to invest to win. Thank you. Mike, do you want to add anything to be No, the only thing I would just, I would just quickly add is that I think you covered it, but I, I would just quickly add you did not see um, be the activity during the quarter in the way of new collaborations or M&A, you should not read anything into that. We continue to have a very robust pipeline and we continue to look at a variety of deals. It does tend to be lumpy and, um, you know, you should fully expect that there will be more transactions in the future. Thanks. So as Priya said uh, very elo elo eloquently, um, neurodegeneration takes more prominence in our, in our prioritization process. And we are in a position to lead in AD, and we are looking at actively, actively at the, all the targets and assets we could uh, we could acquire, but also beyond. We'll take our next question from Tim Anderson with Wolf Research. Uh, thank you. I have a question uh, actually on Adjahome, and it it kind of relates to earlier comments about your role with lecanemab still being. Uh, under contemplation. I think a lot of folks are under the impression you've all but washed your hands uh, and, and, and aren't really doing anything with that at home. But from what I hear, that may not be the case. You're still pursuing a sub-Q version of the product. It sounds like you still may be trying to figure out a path forward to get CMS reimbursement for APOE4 carriers. And I'm wondering if that is true and if that could be a source of tension with ESI uh, it's just not intuitive to me uh, why you wouldn't be all in on lecanemab instead and why you still may be active with Agile. Thank you. So we'll be all in on LECA together with the, uh, with the great partners that we have, and we'll do everything we can to secure access of the product to the patients after regulatory process. Uh, nevertheless, the Clarity AD reinforces the finding that removing aggregated form of A-beta in the brain can be associated with the slowing down of the 
cognitive decline. And this is very important, and this is what we have shown with ADU. And we have patients currently being those on the uh, EMBARC uh, study, and uh, Priya will say more about that. Yes. Um, I'll actually, I don't have a lot to add. What I'll say is that, uh, you know, we are continuing to look at uh, aducanumab, and we haven't made any decisions. For now, we, we believe that the Embark data set is going to be very valuable to the scientific community. These are patients who've been on aducanumab uh, and an anti-amyloid uh, therapy for many years. In addition, we have a post-marketing requirement given that aducanumab was the first product to get accelerated approval. Uh, and this is called the Envision study. So for now, both Envision and Embark continue. Your next question comes from Chris Raymond with Piper Sandler. Hey, thanks. Just maybe a related question to the last one. Um, so, you know, with your commercial infrastructure for Adderhelm largely sort of wound down here, um, how should we think about the ramp maybe in spend on lecanemab infrastructure, um, you know, come January? And, and, and maybe talk about the lessons learned. Uh, from Adahelm and, and walk us through how, uh, you know, you'll resource uh, this launch here um, as you move from potential accelerated approval to full approval. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for the question. I will start and Mike will add on. Uh, it was not reasonable based on the timeline and the gap between uh, the ADU uh, NCD uh, decision uh, and the uh, and the Lecanemab without and then regulatory process to keep a large force on board. Uh, this would not be, have been reasonable, so we had no choice than, than to take the actions that we took. Now, now there is a new page, and together with the, uh, with, with the partners, we are assessing, considering the benefits, uh, the strengths, the relative strengths of each company in each continent, since we intend to file for full approval uh, at the same time approximately uh, in the U.S., uh, in Europe, and Japan, should we have the accelerated approval early in the year. Um, uh, we, we are planning uh, the, uh, um, the, the investment, but we are not yet completely there. So we'll do that in a very paced and controlled manner, and, uh, and we'll take it from here. Mike? Yeah, I would just add to that that, um, you know, as we continue discussions with ASI on the commercialization strategy, um, you know, it's a 50-50 it's a um, profit share. They have the final decision rights, as we've said. Um, there are learnings from the Agilehelm um, situation that that obviously we we all you know share openly, and I would say that I do feel very highly confident that we will uh, you'll see a commercial ramp in spend that will have much better proximity to revenue um, than you saw on on Agilehelm. And obviously there were a number of things on Agilehelm that didn't go the direction that we had anticipated, but um, I do feel confident that we'll be able to gauge it in a way that. Um, and ASI will be able to gauge it in a way that um, the ramp and spend will have better proximity to revenue than what you saw on um, on Agile. Your next question. And I will say, and, and and if I may, I will say that you know we have a new process ahead of us. Uh, what we thought a couple of years ago is that an accelerated will mean product launch, and this was not the case. So here now we have a new process that was outlined, and then we'll be very much uh, controlled in the way we, we spend the company's resource uh, to, to scale up. Your 
your next question comes from Matthew Harrison with Morgan Stanley. Uh, great. Good morning. Thanks for taking the question. Uh, I wanted to address a, another question that I think we get a lot from investors, which is about the potential for certain subgroups or populations to outperform and drive a significant part of the lecanemab uh, top-line result. So can you just maybe confirm if that was the case, if, if, for example, a certain subgroup was a major driver of the response, that you would have called that out in, in the top line, or how should we think about that going into CTAC? Thanks. I can take that question. Uh, thanks for the question, uh, Matthew. So overall, I'll just say that, uh, you know, the Clarity AD met its primary endpoint, which was CDR sum of boxes, uh, and this was uh, with a p-value of 0 0.00005. So it was very, very uh, highly significant. And this was a large trial. So it was about 1,800 participants, uh, you know, with, uh, well, uh, you know, including the underrepresented population. And it met all its uh, secondary endpoints, which were independent uh, domains of cognition and function. So overall, we feel that the results are very, very positive and that they're very encouraging. Now, uh, details of subgroup analyses have not been shared by ESI, and I think we need to wait for the CTAD to see more details about the, both the primary and the secondary endpoints. But at this point, I would say that overall, we believe that, um, you know, we just have to wait, and we feel very encouraged by what we've seen at the top line. I won't be able to comment uh, on exactly what you may or may not see. I think we have to wait for CTAD for that. Your next question comes from Brian Scorney with Baird. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for taking my question. I was wondering if you could outline any broad timeline that you have for um, sub-Q lacanimab. Um, just wondering what, what the pathway looks like uh, and if maybe you're seeking to get initial and chronic dosing approved, or would this be more like initially um, a label where you could have patients switching who have initiated IV over a, a period of time? And, and just any learnings from your interactions with FDA on, on sub-Q to SABRI that you think might be applied uh, as we think about this pathway going forward? Thank you, uh, Brian. So overall, what I can tell you is that uh, this is a very important part of the long-term uh, comprehensive clinical development plan for lecanemab, and this, uh, the subcutaneous formulation development has uh, is already being pursued in the phase three open label extension. We're also ESA is also engaging with FDA, so there are lots of discussions ongoing. Uh, I would just say that the phase one bioavailability data has already been shared publicly. ESA already shared that, and as I mentioned in my uh, remarks. Uh, they are currently looking at the 70, 720 milligram weekly fixed dosing, uh, and this is being evaluated. But the timelines and the details of what else the package might need, that has not been shared. Uh, and so I would say just let's wait for that uh, to be shared, and we will share that when, when it's appropriate. But it is a very important endeavor, and it is ongoing. Your next question comes from Michael Yi with Jeffries. Hey, thanks. Uh, good morning. Uh, going back to uh, the comments about CMS reimbursement and having to wait for CTAD data, I guess maybe you could talk about what pathways or what types of interactions, if any, or what approach you can have with uh, CMS 
uh, to uh, push urgency, whether that be patient advocacy groups, whether you guys are working hard to do that, or whether they just see uh, that there's a, clearly a change from the at-home situation a year ago, and, and they will act fast. Thank you. So SI has the lead in engaging regulators and payers, and from what we know is that SI has already initiated engagement with CMS. So they're responsible for this activity, and at this stage I will not provide more details. But the engagement is there, which is the most important. We'll go next to Robin Karnowskis with Truist Securities. Thank you. Um, my question is uh, two fronts. So we're hearing a lot that Lilly has a very big presence right now and mind share of doctors in this space. And you mentioned, Mike, that you you tend, that you think that we'll have more. I'm trying to interpret what you said is that you're going to ramp up spend in line with revenue. Can you just elaborate a little bit there because you will have competitors in the space. And a small question for Priya. We also hear that tau pathology, that you may not want to do trials in patients that already have a beta plaque with tau. A couple questions there. Thanks. Yeah, I'll just clarify the, the point that I made before. Um, you know, as, as ASI develops the commercialization strategy along with us, you know, the goal there, obviously, the first and primary goal will be to get the launch right and, and put a, uh, an infrastructure in place. That, that supports the best launch possible uh, and will be in position. And um, obviously in the situation that we had with Agilehelm when we received approval in June of 2021, we had a large infrastructure that was built up and, and ready to go. And then obviously we encountered you know significant delays. And the point that I was making is that um, we would hope that that wouldn't be a repeat and that uh, we would have um, the appropriate infrastructure to support a successful launch. That's priority one. And then, um, you know, hopefully we wouldn't experience delays like that. And so that, um, you know, you would see a spend that would ramp in front of revenue, but it wouldn't uh, have the gap that it did on Agilehelm. And I can add to that, uh, Robin. Uh, thanks, Mike. I can add to that. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, doctors and mindshare, I think that, you know, obviously this is a very highly uh, rapidly evolving space from a scientific perspective. And I think Lacanumab has demonstrated that removal of the plaques can result in a clinical uh, impact. And this is really going to be important. I'd also like to add that uh, the safety profile is going to be really, really important here. For example, with lecanemab, we've got uh, rates of aria that are about 21%. We've seen this to be within expectations. And I think that this, together with the efficacy results, are going to be important for doctors to consider. So overall, while I think the question was a little bit more maybe about the launch, I would say that the mind share will depend on the data. And I think the data needs to be seen from the other anti-amyloid therapies before we decide what is going to be meaningful. The other piece I think here is we see ourselves as pioneers. We've got this uh, very encouraging data. We think that the uh, you know this is a very broad and complex uh, patient population and the need and unmet need is very, very high. So, you know, we, we think it's a very uh, important place uh, where we can really make uh, a difference to patients. And then, Robin, on the second question, can you please clarify that? I didn't quite catch it. You broke up towards the end. Yeah, sorry. So for tau pathology, some, um, some scientists believe that you want to clear plaque 
um, before you give the towel. So in other words, the towel may not work alone. You may need to actually combine it with lincanabab now that we understand the biology. The thoughts on all these trials that are ongoing, including um, 080, like how do you think that there's a chance that they may not work because you actually need to actually clear plaque with an A-beta uh, drug like lincanabab? Got it. So I think I'll just step back to say that, uh, you know, obviously amyloid pathology is very key. Uh, we also believe that it's potentially upstream of our pathology. Uh, and with aducanumab, uh, with our data with aducanumab, we did show the impact on phosphorylated tau and such. So we think that this cascade overall is going to be very important. Having said that, I think that, you know, you're right. Uh, that maybe the future of Alzheimer's disease is going to be about the timing of intervention, which I already spoke to, and, you know, that's a very different matter. But it could also be that one, uh, one type of approach may not be adequate. The question here is that we're trying to be very systematic and methodical in how we approach it. So we've now demonstrated with lecanemab that really there is the removal of aggregated uh, plaque, which results in clinical impact. And uh, I think Isa has also shared earlier this year that this could result, with based on data from phase 2B and modeling, that this could result in a preservation of about two to three years before patients progress to significantly more severe stages of Alzheimer's. This is based on modeling and data from phase two, and I know that they have said publicly that they will also do this type of analysis with the phase three data. So I think that we are making significant progress, and then separately, we are tackling the BIB-80, which, you know, we had uh, very encouraging results from our phase 1B trial, where we showed a dose and time-dependent reduction of tau. And, uh, and we believe it addresses all forms of tau. So now we are in the process of, uh, you know, initiating our phase 2, but you're absolutely right. We will be looking at many different approaches in how we can benefit patients uh, in the in the best way that we can. So yes, all biologies need to be considered, but we need to go stepwise and we need to be systematic about this. And uh, if I may add on the mind share, um, you know the epidemiology is so large. There is so much to be built in terms of infrastructure that I we all welcome the efforts of other companies, specifically about Lecanemab. And I know that you have engaged with scientific leaders, some of you. Uh, we have engaged with scientific leaders and clinicians. I think the feedback is very positive from what we hear. And uh, at the end of the day, it will be the uh, efficacy, you know, at six months and expanded over a period of 18 months study and the safety that will make the difference between, uh, between compounds. But at this stage, we welcome every effort to prepare the market for the patients in need. Your next question comes from Jay Olson with Oppenheimer. Oh, hey, thanks for taking the question and congrats on the Clarity AD results. I'm curious about the potential for your collaboration with Denali and how you plan to leverage their TV platform for A-beta antibodies, including Lucanumab and Adithelm. Now that we have positive Clarity AD results, do you think better brain penetration could improve the therapeutic profile 
of A beta antibodies, and what is the timeline to nominate a candidate from the from the TV program? Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Um, it's a very good question. Uh, what I can share with you is that you know we are looking across our portfolio, and we're looking at several of our existing partnerships to see. Uh, how we can actually move and build on the strength of these data and the strength of the biological hypothesis that we've seen. Uh, I can't comment more specifically on the Denali TV platform, uh, but yes, everything is on the table. We'll be looking at everything very carefully, and we'll make announcements uh, as they become uh, relevant and, and as it's appropriate. Thank you. We'll go next to Bill Nadeau with Cowan and Company. Good morning. Thanks for taking our questions. Uh, a follow-up question on the learnings from the endocannumab launch. What are uh, Biogen's recent thoughts on the cannumab's price? Would you expect to price at a premium to Anaheim because of the better data, a discount because of the pushback, and um, appreciating that ESI has, has final say on, on all commercialization decisions? What, what role will Biogen play in, in setting the price of the cannumab? Thank you. As you can anticipate, we cannot comment. It's a size decision, and we will not interfere with this process. We'll go next to Mark Goodman with SVB Securities. Yeah, hi. Could you give us a little more color on OUS Benraza, just what the dynamics were? It's something about price increases or, or positive pricing dynamics there. And then just, Priya, can you just confirm, is the sub-Q dose 720 weekly, is that the one that we're going to be using? Are we still working on the dose and regimen? I, I think your question was about XUS, Minraza. Yeah. Yeah, so we see two types of, of dynamic. Uh, we see a, a European uh, momentum that is being slowed down uh, by the launch of uh, RISD plan. Uh, but we are sharing uh, data on uh, on on the uh, the, uh, the switch from patients issued from the US uh, from plan back to uh, Spinraza for efficacy reason. So I think, and we are learning from the US. So it's a matter of time. We are learning from the US. We are delighted by the US results, and we believe that this becomes um, a, a model for what other um, continents uh, should should learn from. And and um, and and X core Europe, we see a, a very rapid growth in terms of volume, but the price is not the same. So this is the momentum uh, X uh, X uh, X US overall. Uh, we are delighted by the US results, where we can see uh, Spinraza coming back, and uh, and we believe the product will resume its momentum uh, to growth gradually. Mike, do you want to add? Yeah, I would just add, and in the spirit of your question, Mark was directed more at, at OUS. We mentioned the U.S. was flat, and um, OUS overall there was a, a modest decline. But if you strip out FX on a constant currency basis, there was actually growth, and that growth to the points that we made in our prepared remarks, um, there was a modest volume decline, um, primarily due to competition in places like Germany and Canada and Japan, and we had some timing items, um, Russia, Brazil, a few others, um, which was partially offset by volume growth in China. But we did have price increases in uh, in a few of our markets throughout the throughout Europe that that more than upset uh, offset the volume. So to kind of unpack it, 
you had um, modest volume declines, slightly more than offset by price increases, and then you had the FX going against you, OUS. And I'll just uh, wrap up really quickly on the second point. I think that you, uh, second question you had, you know, ESI has communicated that the 720 milligram uh, weekly fixed dose is the dose that shows equivalence to intravenous dosing, uh, 10 milligram per kg biweekly. And it's also actually now listed uh, for the auto-injector study that was recently announced. Uh, I think that was the question. Please uh, correct me uh, if uh, no, that's you had it. a Thank different you. point. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. We'll go next to Chris Schott with J.P. Morgan. Uh, great. Thanks so much for the questions. Can you just talk a little bit more around the dynamics about the two-week IV therapy for, for lecanemab as we wait for the sub-Q and maintenance programs? I guess reimbursement aside, how challenging do you think this is going to be from a commercial and infrastructure standpoint? And, and I know you're not talking about timing, but is this a relatively short window that you envision mm -hmm. that will be using this coast current dosing paradigm, or, or could we be dealing with this for an extended period of time? Thank you. Okay. Um, so I think overall, you know, we, uh, we've seen very good data with the 10 milligram per kg uh, biweekly dose. I think the important point uh, that uh, is very, very, I, I think, relevant here is that, uh, you know, the separation seen at six months, as early as six months, there's no titration, and that expands on an absolute basis. Uh, until the 18-month uh, primary endpoint readout in Clarity AD. So this is very uh, encouraging data. I would say that, you know, um, as the infrastructure around Alzheimer's disease and uh, all of this is being built out, it will actually be quite important for patients to be seen by physicians. So we don't see it necessarily as a disadvantage. Uh, if that was uh, the question, we don't see it as a disadvantage. Uh, but having said that, we are doing everything. ESI is leading this effort, and we're trying to make sure that we are keeping patient convenience in mind, which is the premise of the, uh, you know, the subcutaneous uh, development. So I can't comment beyond that on how long, you know, it will be intravenous and when would it transition uh, to subcutaneous. But we're looking at all these aspects very carefully uh, at a high level and also at a granular level as we build out the, uh, you know, the clinical development program with all these uh, topics in mind. So overall, we believe in the early stages it will actually be really important for uh, patients to be seen in the clinic every two weeks. Your next question comes from Paul Mateus with Stiefel. Great. Thanks so much. Um, I was wondering, based on your experience uh, in the field with Adjuhelm, how would you characterize infusion capacity today in neurology clinics um, ahead of the lecanemab launch? Where is it today, and how much ramp-up do you think needs to happen for there to be uh, materially broader access over time? So what 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 we saw for Aduhelm is that um, the, the 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 system has shown some adaptability by shifting some of the existing infusion center to a potentially uh, Aduhelm at that time. Uh, should there be a reimbursement, we never got reimbursement, so this never happened. Um, uh, and and overall, I believe there is a need to upscale, and the capacity has to be much larger. 
But from my from our learning, we could see that the system was flexible and adaptable based on the current capacity. Your next question comes from Jeff Meacham with Bank of America. Uh, morning, guys. Uh, thanks so much for the questions. Uh, just to follow up on on Lacanamab launch spending, you know, post the restructuring that you guys had earlier this year, uh, can you talk a little bit about the manufacturing assets that that you can redeploy, or maybe some of the commercial investments that you made for Adjuhelm that can be reallocated for the, you know, for the uh, Lacanamab launch? I'm just trying to get a sense for kind of the magnitude of of the spend versus the uh, um, the adoption over the course of next year. Mike? Yeah, so a couple comments, Jeff. Thanks for the question. I would say first on manufacturing, um, you know, we have um, a significant facility in Raleigh, North Carolina, and then we have a uh, relatively new facility in Solitern, Switzerland. And uh, the Solitern, Switzerland facility will be largely dedicated to um, our Alzheimer's disease products, which uh, for now involves a um, ramp up of getting uh, inventory ready for launch. Um, for Lacanamab, I think we had um, a little over $100 million of inventory on hand as of the end of the quarter. And the, uh, you know, that facility, its, it's um, efficiency, so to speak, is um is is heavily tied to the Lacanamab launch um and then to the extent that um Agihelm, um becomes you know more marketable we we could utilize that facility as well so that's that's the state of play there there will be some idle capacity you saw about 12 million this quarter there'll be some idle capacity charges that we'll have to incur over time as that uh as that product ramps um, I would say on the commercial infrastructure, there's not a lot that that uh, can or will be repurposed from Agihelm. Uh, we did um, make the decision, uh, as we've said before, to take that infrastructure down. It was just too long of a time gap from the time that we received the NCD in April of 2022 to when um, Lacanamab would become uh, fully commercialized uh, to maintain that infrastructure. So most of that's been eliminated as part of our um, billion-dollar uh, cost savings that we've committed, and um, so for the most part, the uh, Lacanamab uh, commercialization will be a, a, a new ramp and a new infrastructure that will be built. And that concludes our, our call for this morning. Thank you, everyone, for joining us.